This year marks the 200th anniversary of Florence Nightingale's birth. Widely regarded as one of the progenitors of modern nursing, Nightingale was also influential in the field of statistics. In 1858, she was the first woman elected to the Royal Statistical Society and was made an honorary member of the American Statistical Association in 1874. As with many historical figures, the story of the lady with the lamp who nursed injured soldiers has at times served to almost mythologize Nightingale's contributions to the fields of public health and statistics. The fact and fiction of Florence Nightingale's statistical legacy is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away. Our guest today is Lynn McDonald, professor emerita at the University of Guelph and a former member of the Canadian Parliament. McDonald is also an expert on Florence Nightingale, serving as the director of the 16-volume The Collected Works of Florence Nightingale. McDonald also recently wrote an article for Significance magazine examining Nightingale's contribution to the field of statistics. Lynn, thank you so much for being here today. How did you first become interested in Nightingale's work? Well, I'm a social scientist, and I'm not a nurse or a doctor, and I got on to her because when I started to work on sociological theory, discovered, guess what, there were only men, the women didn't count. And I suspected that just as women knew you know, composers, women artists had been neglected, but they had been there, that there must be women. And Nightingale was one of the ones I found. Mm -hmm. So she's in my early origins of the social sciences, only gets a small part, it's still more men. And then I did two other books on women social theorists. Uh, Nightingale is there, especially because of her research methodology. I'd like to keep the research methods and theory together. And uh, she got bigger and bigger sections. And I had to eventually take over the nursing aspects in India, many, many other aspects of her work, because she ranged so very far. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about how she went from kind of her, her first roots to becoming this person that we've known and, and celebrated for her many contributions? Well, she came from a very upper class English family. So when she experienced what she understood to be a call mm -hmm. from God, to nurse, to save lives, to serve, she uh, wanted to follow it. But it was unseemly for a woman of her status to be a nurse. It was like being a kitchen maid. And in fact, they were quite disreputable uh, nurses in England at that time. She was allowed to travel and she learned and she visited hospitals. Uh, women couldn't go to university then, so her education was uh, very, uh, very casual, but uh, she read widely, she was very critical, uh, very smart, she worked very hard, she read government reports on statistics, she analyzed census data, she wanted to understand, you know, what's in the population, which is all very good background for when she actually had to face the Crimean War and the high death rates there and analyze them after the war. So you, you talked about in your in your article and significance about kind of things that she, that she did and things that she didn't do and sort of that distinction of what what are some of the things that we think she did that she really didn't and what are some of the things that we that she did that that people don't really appreciate. But she is often credited 
with actually collecting statistics during the Crimean War, even out in the battlefield collecting statistics. Well, the Crimean War took place in the Crimea, and her big hospital, the Skutari Barrick Hospital, was in Turkey, 300 miles away across the Black Sea. And she didn't get there till November. The death started in April. And the Army Medical Department certainly counted uh, uh, death data, actually not terrifically well, they got better at it later, but uh, she did not do uh, uh, did not do any data collection where she made the great contribution was after the war in analyzing it and learning the lessons from that war. Uh, she was terrific at learning, she asked the right questions. The Army Medical Department thought that climate had a lot to do with the high death rates. Nightingale didn't think that and of course climate is a wonderful excuse. If it's climate, you can't do anything about it. But if it is fecal material in the drinking water, dead horses in the water supply, overcrowding, lack of ventilation, poor nutrition, uh, all of those things, they can be dealt with. You need better organization, that's what. Why is it, why do you think it is that, that people imagine that she went to the Crimea? How did these sort of myths around her kind of erupt? And how do you think it is that sort of the, the truth of her contributions have been um, overlooked or obscured? Well, she uh, was sent to lead the first team of women nurses to nurse in war for the uh, British Army. And it, that was a result of press coverage of the war and the bad conditions. And far more men died of disease than died of wounds. And they died from the unsanitary conditions. Now, the French army had none, Sisters of Charity, and that got good press uh, in the UK. And so the War Department decided that they should send some women. And as it happened, the junior war minister, Sidney Herbert, knew Nightingale. And his wife, Elizabeth Herbert, was on the board of the small hospital in London in Upper Harley Street that Nightingale was then running, very small hospital. And she was, although she didn't have a lot of experience, she was probably the best experienced person to go because nursing, of course, uh, was still a, a very lowly uh, uh, thing to do. And the kinds of people who did nursing could never lead a team. And what uh, so much of what she did was not even just the nursing. She did nurse. And, and mm -hmm. uh, th that's part of it. But it was getting supplies in. Beds, bedding, better food, clothes. The men would come in. They had scurvy. Their feet were blackened from frostbite. They had verminous clothes. Uh, they hadn't washed in a long time. The army didn't send soap until the second year of the war. Wow. Oh. And so Nightingale had to do all those practical things. And she did them with funds raised by the Times newspaper in mm -hmm. England. So when the army medical department fell down on the job, Nightingale was buying supplies in Constantinople, now Istanbul, and getting them into the hospitals. So she improved conditions. Now that war also is considered in some respects the first modern war yeah. because there were war correspondents yes. and they could get their stories back. Now it wasn't instant, it was, it, but it only took 10 days to get a story back. Very <laughs> right, right. fast. Uh, and so the stories got back and the stories were also of what Nightingale did. 
and that people saw her and and the soldiers saw her and their conditions were improved mm -hmm. and then one of the things she did and this is where the lamp comes from and usually it was carried by a recovered soldier very well he was just a boy when he enlisted and he would hold the lamp for nightingale and she would go and uh, go by the soldiers and in the case of some who were clearly dying she would take down the last letter and send it to his family. Now, can you imagine a family getting a letter that's sympathetic from Florence Nightingale? These are wonderful letters, and we know this because some people sent the letter to the local newspaper oh, who published my. it, you see? And so this reputation grew that she was a, a kind, decent person, as well as the person who got things done, who got the food into the kitchen and the beds into the wards. You, you've raised the press a couple of times and, and the Victorian Crimean War is sort of seen as a sort of one of the first modern wars. And, you know, Nightingale's work, obviously, in the, in the hospital in Turkey, seen as a sort of moment for modern public health, but also for journalists. And again, I'm a journalism professor. Uh, William Howard Russell is, you know, who covered the Crimea um, for British outlets, was an Irish, uh, Irish individual um, covering uh, this conflict. Um, is seen as the first one of the first modern war correspondents. Um, but he got a lot of flack because the British authorities did not like the stories that seemed to be critical of what the British were doing and and in, in particular the conditions that soldiers were living in. And I wonder if there's any evidence that there are there was some um, discomfort or or pushback from British authorities of Lawrence Nightingale's work, right? It would I would assume it's making the British government look bad because their condition their soldiers are being are living in these horrid conditions and again, you know, so much of the death is about sort of the sanitation around the the conditions. Was there any sort of pushback from British authorities um on Nightingale's work either in the field or when she came back and was crunching the numbers later? There is a, a very good explanation for all of this. It was the Aberdeen government that sent the British army to the Crimean War in the first place and declared war uh, in March uh, 1854. And the war actually started in September mm -hmm. and the death started and, uh, and the horrible hospitals got revealed in the fall, high death rates over the winter. Then in January 1855, uh, a British MP, Arthur Roebuck, moved a motion on the mismanagement of the war by the government and it passed and after it passed the government resigned mm -hmm. and it was replaced by a new government led by lord palmerston a liberal who happened to be a next-door neighbor of the nightingale <laughs> <laughs> and better still lord palmerston was a sanitarian the word simply means somebody who believes in sanitary science which is basically what we would call public health cause and effect and lord shaftesbury who was a, a conservative mp was also a sanitarian and so uh, the government was pressed to do something and lord palmerston wrote this wonderful vicious letter to lord raglan the commander-in-chief and sent it with Dr. Sutherland, who became Nightingale's lifelong ally on public health. He was a public health 
officer of health, a medical officer of health mm -hmm. in Liverpool and, and an experienced person. And he and a civil engineer who was a water expert went with one other person and, and uh, some uh, uh, practical uh, workmen, and they also had to hire some. And they're the ones who cleaned up the hospitals. They had to be mm -hmm. literally renovated. The sewers, the toilets didn't work. You know? There were, I could ruin your, your day, the feces on the floor spread. Now, Nightingale oh. did not go into the men's bathrooms. And so to depict this, apart from the smell, which went very far and wide, she quoted uh, a uh, report by an MP who happened to be there and who described how awful the men's toilets were because they were plugged and they didn't work. And so uh, the Sanitary Commission cleaned these things up. And so this is another thing that has to be understood, that uh, I think it's the sanitary, condition, sanitary Commission that did the most to bring down the death rates. Bedside nursing, however nice it is, doesn't help if the water is polluted, uh, if the men have to trample through feces to get anywhere near, you know, a hole in the, in, in the ground, if... Uh, uh, it's, you know, the air is polluted and there's no ventilation. Mm -hmm. You need to have renovations done. And uh, that was done by the Sanitary Commission. And Nightingale's work after the war documented this. So when you see uh, the report, you see the wedges, the wedges get larger and larger mm -hmm. as the death rates increase. And then they start to decline. And Nightingale actually puts in a little line saying, arrival of the Sanitary Commission. Mm -hmm. oh. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about Florence Nightingale with Nightingale scholar Lynn McDonald. I'm curious when you were talking about her, you know, her funding of some of the, the work that she did in purchasing supplies for the troops, that that some of this was from the press and and you know stories about this. Did did she have any connection to particular reporters? Did she correspond with reporters related to this and and help help enlist them to tell the story? No, I don't think so. Uh, they uh, they found out what she was doing. Uh, Russell certainly did and reported on her work. But I think she was perhaps being a loyal civil servant. She wasn't going to squeal uh, mm -hmm. uh, on the authorities. And after all, the British press is pretty robust and uh, they can get their stories. And um, the stories were very hard hitting. So uh, Nightingale, uh, Nightingale was uh, very clean that way. She didn't, uh, she didn't tell stories. Uh, she was probably very confident that they'd get out anyways. I, I really liked your, you know, when I was reading your significance piece, this, you know, just the, the idea that her contributions of, you know, that she was an expert at asking the right questions and analyzing data and writing it up persuasively. I mean that that combination of kind of good data, you know, good data intuition, good good analytic skills, but then the then the connection to this persuasive writing, you know, I wonder where did she where did she learn that? I mean, do you do you have any intuition or any sense of where that how that might have emerged? I don't know how she learned to write. She certainly read good literature, uh, but she was an excellent writer, and I think she got better over her lifetime. You can see mm. some of the things she wrote quite late in life. And they're very, very good. Uh, I think her writing style even improved. But she, she had a message to deliver. She kept it simple. She asked the right questions. I and mean, for data analysis, it's simple. It's columns and rows, numbers mm -hmm. and percentages, and very simple charts. Very, very simple. Uh, 
but uh, uh, and you want to get them out to a scholarly audience. You want people to look at them who are themselves experts and medical doctors. You also want the general public to. So she always wanted uh, journalists uh, to see the materials. She wanted uh, the stories to go into magazines, not just academic journals. Mm -hmm. It seems like you you mentioned that this idea that that Nightingale was a sort of loyal civil servant who was doing this public health work and had connections with you know people in power in the British government to, to help make change and it feels like a lot of the conversations around public health in in the last several decades right there's a lot more tension around that it doesn't seem like there's there it's at least what we see publicly feels tense are you do you think there are things that that we can learn either you know during living during the time of COVID or other things that we can take examples or, or lessons we can take from Nightingale's work with, with authorities as, as far as it comes to sort of the approach to public health and dealing with public health issues. I think Nightingale is a very good example uh, and her, her, her modus operandi should be followed uh, in uh, the COVID-19 crisis that we have right now because Nightingale was very good at learning what went wrong. Mm-hmm. And the British army brought their death rates down while the French army's death rates went up in the second year of the war, even though there was no fighting in the war. But the British had set the sanitary com- commission. They had made physical changes uh, in the living conditions, in the hospitals also, in the uh, camps. And so as a result, death rates went down. And uh, you can, well, we can make those comparisons. The British didn't actually have the hard French data at that time, Mm -hmm. but they did know that their rates were going down. And the point I would make for comparison nowadays is different countries and different states are using different methods to combat COVID-19. Some have more thorough lockdowns, some are more casual, some started early, some started late, some do a lot of testing, some only test the most serious cases. There's quite a bit of variation. Well, who uh, has the lowest death rates? And those are the kinds of questions we should be asking. There could well be another wave or more than Mm -hmm. one wave of uh, COVID-19. And so it would be very useful to know what gets the best results. And Nightingale was very good at finding out what gets the best results. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of her contributions beyond the uh, sanitary conditions in the hospitals during the war? What are some of the other areas that, that you would mention in terms of the impact of Florence Nightingale? Well, certainly hospital design. And that's something that she took up with the vengeance afterwards, especially if you start a nursing school, nursing school's got to be attached to a hospital. Why would you want women to go to a nursing school when they, when hospitals have such high death rates? Mm-hmm. And it's not just military hospitals, army hospitals, uh, uh, you know, far from home, the regular hospitals, the mm-hmm. London hospitals, this is the best teaching hospitals in London, had death rates of 10% of admissions. It's hard to imagine. So Nightingale was very concerned about changing hospital design. You build a hospital and it's going to be around usually for a hundred years and some some more. And so if you build it badly so that uh, a cross-infection is fostered, you want to build hospitals to minimize cross-infection, which the pavilion model did. So Nightingale became a very strong advocate of that. And uh, that was, I don't know, that's something that she learned from the Crimean War. She 
uh, she picked it up very quickly after the war. And then, of course, the profession of nursing. When Nightingale started, there weren't trained nurses. Her school was the first in the world. And British so-called nurses, I mean, there's no copyright on the name and they were called nurses, but they weren't trained. And in the case of the UK, they were quite disreputable. They were known for boozing on the job and taking opiates. But the worst thing they did, according to Nightingale, was to demand bribes for services. Now, nuns on the continent, Sisters of Charity and so forth, they were respectable women. They did not demand bribes for services, although Nightingale noted that uh, their servants did. Mm. Uh, but they weren't trained. And so, however decent they were and however well-meaning they were, uh, they weren't doing the kind of job Nightingale wanted. Nightingale wanted a secular profession. She had a faith. She felt called by God. And, and it, it was, it was, she was working for God. Um, as far as she was concerned. But the nursing profession had to be open to people of any faith or none at all. And people should be paid for their work and well-paid. Nuns, uh, nuns do it because of their, their beliefs. Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, these disreputable women were paid, but paid very badly. And so uh, Nightingale's vision of a nursing profession was very, very different. And you see, at that time, and here's another parallel with COVID-19, at that time, the great diseases, the infectious diseases, the fevers and the bowel diseases, their sources were not known. The bacilli that caused them weren't known. COVID-19, at least it's known what it is. But there was no effective treatment and no vaccine. So there's a parallel there. Mm -hmm. So the, what the nurse did is she helped the patient get through the crisis. And if they did, uh, they, they would survive. And that's what, that's what happens now, although people are on respirators now uh, um, in, in the worst situation. But there isn't a cure, there isn't a vaccine. And so skilled medical and nursing staff have to get the patient through. And Nightingale was very, very good at that. You, you talked a lot about her, her work on teams. That, that that was a, a big part of, of her success and kind of her connection and, and the impact of her work. I was, could you talk a little bit about some of the teams that she worked on? And particularly, could you talk a little bit about some of the connection to the stat community of that day? Yes, the statistics community was quite small then, but she did connect right after the Crimean War with uh, Dr. William Farr, a medical doctor who was considered the best medical statistician, and he adored Nightingale, and he did a lot of work. We don't know how much, uh, especially of those charts, we don't know how much was Farr's work and how much was Nightingale's. He had done uh -huh. charts before, uh, and uh, 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 he had a staff at the General Register Office uh, to, to work. Uh, we don't know what Nightingale did and what he did, but we do know that the result of their collaboration was better than anything he had ever done before. Mm -hmm. So that's a medical statistician and the absolute top one. She had civil engineer Robert Rawlinson, who was a water expert, and he continued to be a loyal supporter and did all kinds of things for her for many years afterwards. Douglas Galton was a royal engineer and, he, and actually a hospital designer in effect. And Nightingale would send plans of hospitals that she was asked to criticize. She would send them to Dr. Sutherland, uh, her uh, medical officer of health, who had been uh, uh, chair of the uh, sanitary commission. He was a close uh, connection. So she had top, top, top close connections and she, she sent them stuff and asked them to look at it so that when she gave a reply, she knew that she was 
that she was getting it right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just her idea that other very good people had gone over it uh, uh, for her. And they, they, they liked that. They were glad to, to work for her in that sense. They had expertise she couldn't have. She didn't go to university. She didn't take engineering. <laughs> you know, she wasn't an architect, but she asked the right questions. She could understand. She was demanding and respectful of them and encouraging of them. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you, you first wrote about um, Nightingale in relation to sort of the origins of social science or the early days of social science. Now, what do you think? I mean, I think you, we, you've talked a little bit about this, but what do you think people who, who want to train to be social scientists or train to work in public health, what can they take from Florence Nightingale's work? What, what should they take from, what, what should they think about in relation to her work as they sort of, you know, whether they're students just starting out or maybe people who are in the field now, what, what can we learn? I consider myself a social scientist. What can we learn from her? I think in uh, the social sciences, especially in classical social theory, uh, people want to uh, deal with somebody more elegant than Florence Nightingale. They want mm. some, you know, high-flying theorist. And Nightingale, I call her a mainstream social theorist. What works? Now, Marx will tell you why capitalism doesn't work and, and why it will break down. Nightingale didn't take that view. She tried to make it work. She tried to get, and eventually the UK did get a national health service. Mm -hmm. you know, really good uh, public health care and uh, uh, treatment. And uh, these are system changes, but not at the level of Marx they have. You know? mm -hmm. And so uh, she just may, may seem, well, she's too applied. I mean, that's so practical. Well, actually, it saves lives. Mm -hmm. but, uh, right. that's, that's not as exciting as um, taking, uh, you know, Max Weber wrote about very global issues, you know, and the changes in, uh, you know, from one type of a society to another type of society. And Nightingale said, well, let's get death rates down and, and let's get education improved and, and, and let's get people to be healthy. And these, of course, are very important issues, but they don't quite have the glamour that uh, the big name theorists went for. Well, Lynn, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Very pleased to be with you. Thanks, Lynn. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.